Welcome back to Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward, and today we are sitting down and we are talking with author Miriam Diaz Gilbert about her new book, Come What May, I Want to Run. Uh, it is basically a memoir about the challenges in life and how running and ultra running and moving the body can really help you, uh, you know, take those challenges on, which is truly something I'm sure all of us can connect to all of us understand, you know, I, I think when I was a kid and, you know, being someone who works with young people every single day, I think sometimes there's this weird perception that some people never have challenges, you know, like I think when I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, I bet that guy or that girl, like I bet they never have challenges. Um, and I think part of it is kind of like a part of us just, you know, being egotistical when we're kids, which is not like a bad thing. It's what <laughs> naturally happens in childhood development. Um, you know, as you're younger, what you know is you and what you consider is yourself and you're not seeing other people's perspectives in you know an accurate way until you get a little bit older but then you know as life goes on you start realizing like yeah every single person doesn't escape this journey without having their fair share of challenges and whether that's medical challenges family challenges work challenges all those things um, we all have them, you know, and I think that's an important thing to realize. And just from my own, you know, my own life, I think what Miriam comes to realize in this book is something I can connect to, which is, hey, sometimes when you're going through hard stuff, you also just have to do hard things. You know, you just have to go for a run when you don't want to go for a run. You have to put the shoes on, head out the door and just go move your body. You got to go to the gym. You got to move around. You got to go for a hike. You got to go for a bike ride, whatever it may be for you. Um, in the moments where you're dealing with these tough challenges in life, sometimes just moving gives you space from, you know, what you're dwelling on with the challenge. And sometimes moving just makes everything seem more manageable. I'm not sure why. I'm sure there's like some smart neurological reason why. But for me, when I move my body, when I exercise, when I uh, exert myself, whatever the things that are, are happening in my life that are stressful, they seem more manageable. And uh, I think that's a really powerful message and a powerful lesson. So uh, I just want to thank Miriam for coming on the show. Um, and I want to thank you all for listening. Um, I'm very excited about 2024. Uh, I have a whole bunch of episodes already recorded. So if you are new with us um, on the Like a Bigfoot journey, uh, thank you for joining. We got a whole bunch coming up that are just very exciting to me. Um, and I'll preview them in the outro of this podcast. Uh, so, um, you know, stick around for that. So, Let's get into it. This is Like a Bigfoot podcast number 365 with Miriam Diaz Gilbert. You're an ultra runner. You're a writer. Uh, you've been a caregiver for your husband. We'll talk about that. But um, I'm just honored to have you back. So welcome back to the show. 
Yeah, and thank you so much, Chris, for having me back. Um, it's always uh, nice to talk to you. I had a great time the first time you interviewed me, and I'm happy to share my journey once again with you. Yeah, and you are back with a book, like a memoir of ultra running and just life challenges, really. Um, and it's called Come What May, I Want to Run. And I just want to say congratulations on finishing the book. That is like just such a humongous undertaking. So huge congrats for that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it took me uh, about eight years to write. And um, I wanted to share uh, the uh, the role of ultra running in my life. Yeah. And um, ultra running has always been there for me during very overwhelming times in my life. And in, yeah. in my book, I, I cover that, you know, when my husband was first diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer in 2018, um, I was training for an ultra. Yeah. Um, and um, I had some experience, some really um, awful workplace mistreatment. I was an academic and um, ultra running helped me, you know, overcome some of that. Um, and um, just with my own health issues, you know, I, I was a B12 deficient for many years until I was properly diagnosed in 2009. Yeah. Um, and then in 2012, after placing third in um, uh, my first 24 hour ultra, yeah. which was a little over three miles around this massive lake in Mexico. <laughs> I placed third. I was really happy. I think with a little over 83 miles. So I was really happy. And I, I didn't go into that to place. I was just happy that I did. And three uh, days later, I had a schedule uh, hysterectomy. Yeah. Uh, to remove uh, massive fibroids. And um, I went in and came out the next day. I went home and I, I felt good. And um exactly a week later I didn't feel so well uh long story short went back to the hospital where I was admitted with a small bowel obstruction I ended up in the hospital 14 days which is very rare no one's yeah. in the hospital 14 days uh I was sent home even though I was still leaking um from what appeared to be urine um they told me it was normal that my organs were paralyzed because of the surgeries that I've had. And so I believed them and I went, I went home. And a couple of weeks later, I woke up with a fever. Yeah. Did you have like a massive infection or something? Wow. Glad you asked. <laughs> I came to the emergency room uh, where they uh, take me to the OR. The surgeon who did the hysterectomy took me back to the OR. And um, uh, that's when a urology doctor, a urologist came in as a consult and discovered that my left ureter had been cut oh, during, wow. during the hysterectomy. So sepsis was starting to set in. Oh. And I was readmitted to the hospital again for another five days. And that's when a nephrostomy tube was inserted in my left kidney uh, because uh, my body was drowning in urine. Yeah. Uh, and um, of course, I was on medical leave. I couldn't go back to my teaching job, uh, university teaching job. And um, 
the entire time, I had to wait seven weeks for the ureter to be repaired because of the surgeries that I had had, they had to heal. The incisions had to heal. Yeah. When you have surgery, you get adhesions and they need to be healed. Um, so I waited seven weeks and um, luckily my uh, ureter was very repaired very nicely. It was a great success, the surgery. And um, I started plotting my next ultra. <laughs> well, yeah. That, yeah, that's crazy. That's probably like the worst recovery from an 83 mile run that someone possibly can have. Um, yeah, as a science teacher, we just got done with our unit all about the human body and the body systems uh, and things like this. Uh -huh. And I think like, at least for, for me, like, you know, everyone's heard of the kidneys. Everyone knows what they do, or I mean, everyone knows they're important. But right. I find at least with seventh graders, granted, uh, a lot of them don't fully understand what they do. And I was thinking back, I'm like, man, I didn't really understand their exact functions until college. I worked in the hospital. I was like a um, like a person delivery guy. Like uh, they in the hospital. When I was in college and graduate school. I used to register patients. In the yeah. I like highly suggest to anybody who is I learned young, so much exactly yeah. who has a young person like go work at a hospital because because you're gonna see just so much and start to understand things so much and i remember taking patients to like the dialysis center and just how hard that seemed to be on their bodies like when their kidneys didn't work you basically have to filter your blood through a machine to clean out um all the toxins that your kidneys normally would um and then to see those people come in like they had to come in like every other day to like keep going yeah. and i yeah, was exactly. like wow I was really lucky. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, in fact, the urologist who did the surgery, uh, who repaired me, uh, said to 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 John and to me that he was really shocked when he was called to the OR. He thought I had had the hysterectomy the day before. Oh. And he that was Labor Day. Oh uh, wow. And I, I had the hysterectomy on August first. Oh my god. And Labor Day that year, I think, was September 6th. And he was stunned that I was not worse yeah. where I was. He he said, you should have been really critically ill. And uh, I know what saved me. Of course, my faith and prayer. But my body was in such great physical shape. Yeah. And that's why I always say that ultra running saved my life. Yeah, I was in really good shape. Um, in fact, when I when I went for to get my hysterectomy, the anesthesiologist comes to see you and they ask you questions. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, are you an athlete? <laughs> and I said, no, I teach at a university. <laughs> and he says, and then John chimes in and says, well, you just placed third in a 24 hour race. <laughs> Uh, she's an ultra runner and the anesthesiologist like what's an ultra runner so I had to explain to him and he said you're an athlete you have an athlete part and then I realized later that if an athlete has like beats per minute is 40 to 60 yeah you have an athlete's heart yeah and 53 yeah so he said wow you are in such good shape yeah well, and I mean, that is important just in general, you know, like I, 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 oh, for sure. Like I think about my mom right now and 
she's in her 70s and she has fallen off her bike and broken her hip yeah. and and stuff but she recovered so fast from it and they were like well partially is because you're in really good shape and you're an athlete and your body's used your body's used to be putting under pressure and stress and then like recovering from it you know absolutely yeah so that was uh and so i uh started plotting um i would walk around the neighborhood with uh my sweats on and my nephrostomy tube and urine bag strapped to my thigh yeah just to keep moving yeah you know I lost 20 pounds, so everything was falling off. I remember yeah. I had old navy to get some skinny jeans. Yeah. That would stay on. Um, and the entire time, it, when I was in the hospital through the surgeries, uh, through everything, I would just visualize crossing the finish line at all my races. Yeah. This was a, this was an ultra of a different kind. For sure. And then I said, I was so grateful uh to be alive. Um to start healing, um, that I, I, I signed up for an ultra, the dirty German 50, uh, of May of 2013. My surgery was, um, all this nightmare started in uh, August of 2012. Um, I, I wanted to run the dirty German trail ultra that takes place outside Philly. Uh, but my body wasn't ready. Mentally, I was ready, but at mile 26 and a half, I dropped because I knew I didn't have enough time to get to the next station. Yeah. Um, but I was really happy that I did 26.5 miles. So, uh, but then I said, well, I'm not giving up. I'm going to go back to around the lake 24 hour where I placed third uh, the year before. And it uh, was uh, an ultra. It was part of my healing journey. Yeah super super hot again that that weekend uh in july and um i met i at uh i think i did 65.4 miles or so and i said i'm done it's like 100 degrees outside <laughs> and at the time i was also i had been um uh diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis yeah so on meds for that um and um I was just really happy to to be able to do it. I know I can go back, and um, that year I played sixth female, so I was that's like, awesome. I was still really happy. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's a, it was a nightmare. Um, the surgery. Um, I also was told that I had a urinary tract infection when I had the nephrostomy tube inserted, and I said, "No, I don't have a urinary tract infection. I don't feel anything like that." And they said, yeah, you do. So they gave me Cipro. Yeah. Cipro is the atomic bomb of antibiotics. Yeah, it just goes in, blasts everything. But it's very dangerous and it has incapacitated many people. Yeah. A couple of days after I started Cipro, I couldn't lift my shoulders. Okay. I couldn't dress myself. Uh, uh, long story short, I had Cipro toxicity. Oh, man. I did the research. Uh, I found these academic research articles by, written by doctors and researchers that say Cipro should never be given to athletes and runners because they can tear your tendons and your muscles. And um, I had to educate uh, the urologist and his group about the dangers of Cipro. And I have two very good friends. They're married. They're retired now. She's an internist and he's a uh, orthopedic surgeon. And I was telling them this 
over dinner one day when this all happened. And they're like, Cipro, we give that out like candy. I said, are you serious? And Cipro is banned in many parts of the world. When I wonder if it's more commonly known now, because I remember um, my doctor at one point uh, prescribed it and but he also knew I was an athlete. And he's like, hey, man, like, don't use this unless you absolutely have to. That's that's smart. Yeah. I'm glad that you did you use it. No, I didn't. It was basically like a preemptive like we had to have it with us um for an event um and just for like a safety precaution in case you got really really sick but he's like hey man if you start this you're done like you're not running anymore for that week or you're not like you know working out at all or anything like well, that that's good. i'm glad that he told you that i'm glad <clears throat> take it you know uh cipro has saved a lot of people's lives yeah you know? so it works on, on many people but it also does not work on many more um and um it's just uh, people need to be warned and in my case um cipro is one of 11 drug allergies that i have yeah yeah so i i have severe severe, severe uh, drug allergies well like, can I can i ask you this like i've never had a chance to ask anyone what sepsis feels like <laughs> And I know it's probably oh, not. You, you know, yeah, I, 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 it was starting to set in. So what happens is you have body chills. Okay. Body chills and uh, a fever. So my yeah. fever went from 100 to 101. And we called the doctor who said, uh, just take uh, Tylenol. Yeah. And then it didn't happen. The next day it was 102 and I was burning. Yeah. And really severe body chills. Yeah. And that's to the hospital and then they knew right away something was not right because so basically knew. your immune system is just overdrive like it's not yeah. it's yeah. not well, going to help if you take Tylenol yeah so I had an I had an infection and um yeah so I was really lucky and the doctors I have to tell you every doctor that took care of me was just amazed yeah that I was critically ill they were yeah. stunned that's amazing. Well, I do want to hear about like you kind of brought up the idea of ultra run, like teaching you ultra running, teaching you that life is basically a journey. And then when you're going through a hard struggle like that, or like being a caretaker for your husband, which I know is a, a major part of your story, um, just being able to have that perspective, I think is so incredibly important it just like keeping us grounded you know yeah yeah you know i've been i started running um in college i started running in college after a college breakup yeah and so you know i was the walking wounded and really heartbroken and uh i started to run around campus at nighttime so that no one could see my tears if i run in the dark yeah you know, thing. Uh, and I was an athlete. Um, and you probably read the part where I was an athlete when I yep. was young, field hockey and basketball and all of that. But uh, coaches didn't know what to do with me. Um, but yeah, I just kept running. And I found that uh, running was very healing. And um, it was very good medicine. Like I didn't have to take anything else, just, just the running. And I discovered that I really enjoyed it and liked it. So then as I got older and um, I ran my first 5K when my daughter was one uh, and I liked that. And then I, it, it just morphed 
from 5Ks to 10Ks to half marathons to marathons. And um, I didn't know what ultra running was. Yeah. Until I saw Dean Carnassus and Pam Reed being interviewed on 60 Minutes. Yeah. Talking about ultra running. And that was a low point in my life. I was having a difficult time in my job. And um, I'm watching this episode and ultra running, you know, really piqued my interest. And I remember saying to myself, what the hell is ultra running? <laughs> so I'm listening to Dean. I didn't know who he was. I don't know who Pam is, but I was fascinated by their stories and their journeys and how they started running. And I said to myself, you know what? That's what I need. I need a new challenge. And that was January 2010. And I got on our desktop in the family room and I just Googled ultra running and JFK 50 came up. Yeah. And that's how it all got started. And my husband did not support me at first. That part made me laugh in the book because I was like, oh, she's just going straight up honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And I'm like so excited. I'm going to train. He goes, what the F are you talking about? You're not going. I said, just because you said I can't. I will. And um, boy, was he pleasantly surprised when I finished. Yeah. At the okay. That was such a wonderful experience. You know, I have to tell you, Chris, I think my superpower, I was asked once, what's your superpower? Yeah. I, I think my superpower is suffering. Yeah. Because from suffering comes endurance and resilience. Yeah. And that's, that's how, how I see it. So ultra running again, um, you know, it takes a lot of discipline. Um, I like being outside in nature. I like the trails, I like row running. And I also have the unconditional support and love of my family. Like my children, when they were young, I'm a grandmother now, Yeah, you know, they have little ones and my daughter's a runner. She does a half marathon. She wants to move up my son and not so much. He's a baseball player and baseball coach, you know, yeah. that kind of, but yeah, ultra running, um, it's about um, just being disciplined and focused. And I think I've had such longevity. I'm just an ordinary runner, uh, Chris. But my longevity, I've been running over 34 years competitively yeah. you know, you know, in, in races. And I think my longevity is I've been running every single year since 1989, except for 2009, when I had, uh, I couldn't walk or run because um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was severely uh, B12 deficient as a result of myelopathy of the spinal cord, which means that my body does not naturally produce enough B12 to make myelin sheath around my spinal cord. Okay. So I have neurological b12 deficiency so does and, that mean the like signals going down to your legs and things just oh, aren't going as fast or what does that mean because i know myelin well, sheath like speeds speeds up the neurological reactions right, there. but what happens is when there's no myelin sheath everything misfires okay and um you get numbness and tingling and um spasms like my fingers would twitch uh, while eating, um, but, but painful, uh, I couldn't put shoes on. I couldn't run. I remember I would go up for a run and it was taking me like 45 minutes longer to run 12 miles. I'm like, what is going on? And then I would feel in my legs, like, uh, someone was sprinkling water on me. Yeah. 
nerves misfiring. So it was just like system overdrive kind of weirdness going on. Yeah, yeah it, and the thing, and I couldn't sleep. It okay. very, very, and then I would get uh, toe curling. My right toe would completely curl back. What? It was horrible. And I would wake up screaming and John would say, what, what is it? What is it? And I like, look at my, look at my toe. My, and everything would fan out. My fingers would fan out. Yeah. Um, I had every test under the sun in 2009. That's yeah. summer. Uh, the doctors couldn't figure it out. Uh, at one time they said, oh, it looks like you're low on B12. So you just need a shot. So they gave me one shot and that was it. And then I was told, Oh, you seem to have the same symptoms as uh, workers at a pork processing plant. Okay. Who are all in comas or like four of them in comas. And they, you know, and they may have chronic demyelinating polyneuropathy. Uh, and you seem to be exhibiting the same symptoms as they. Uh, but we don't think you have chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. So the neurologist emailed me to tell me um uh you should stop eating pork that's why i remember reading that in the book and i was like i don't fully understand this and like if someone told you that like hey we think you might have this thing that put these people in a coma but you probably don't have that thing i'd be like i don't understand what's happening right now first i thought it was like <laughs> a joke i said this is from a friend that said yeah. and then that's when i said enough yeah you know, so, yeah uh first i was told i was i had chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy and so i researched that and i came across a world-renowned expert who's at johns hopkins yeah and so i made an appointment to see him and um he changed my life so basically like you just had to take a whole crap load of vitamin b12 yes yes so he said <laughs> Exactly. You need to be on B12 injections for life. Wow. And then it so just goes, it just went away, like all those I, things. So I, I have permanent uh, uh, nerve damage in my right foot. Okay. Like uh, like three of my toes are numb. Okay. can't feel. And right now as I'm speaking to you, yeah, I can feel the sensation. So, but I've learned to live with it, Chris. Yeah. I don't know what to stop me, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, sometimes when I'm baking and I'm stirring with the wooden spoons, my fingers get caught. Okay. One has to make them straighten them out for me. Yeah. Try not to do too much baking when he's not here. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so I got my running legs back. I got my first injection in September, on September 28th, uh, 2009. And um, I was on B12. The doctor gave me, um, he's retired now, Dr. David Kornblatt, but he gave me a shot right there in his office. Oh, yeah. And I was tested for ALS. For Oh, yeah, MS. probably. Yeah. Like all of the okay. neurological oh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank God I didn't have any of that. And um, so it was a shot every day for a week, then once a week for a month. Uh, and then uh, once a month or, but then I realized when you're training, you expend a lot of energy in your red blood cells and all of that. And it wasn't enough. So I was taking it every other week. Uh, and as I continue to run and train more, I'm on B12. I have been for a few years now, uh, twice a week. 
Okay. Because they're like, hey, you're athlete, you're deplenishing yourself as you go. Exactly. Exactly. And without it, see, B12 deficiency is extremely dangerous if untreated. Um, The worst case scenario, it can lead to psychosis. Wow. For that dementia, before that paralysis. Yeah. Uh, and so what was what I've learned in the process is how much doctors do not know about B12 deficiency yeah. when it's so easily and affordably treatable. It's yeah. not, you know, and insurance, most insurance, of course, insurance companies will pay for it depending on your insurance plan. But yeah, so I've educated people. I've written about B12 deficiency. That article and my YouTube video on B12 deficiency is one of the most watched. Really? People from all over the world have reached out to me to tell me that I saved their life. Yeah. Do you think it's like, it's hard to diagnose because it kind of like- Mimic other things? Yes. It appears like all these other things and all that. Right, right, right. And and no one in my family has B12 deficiency. I'm not sure why I have it. Uh, but if I don't take B12, like yeah. I twice a week, I take it on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Um, if I forget, sometimes I forget to take it to inject myself. Um, I could feel like creepy crawlers on my feet. Whoa. And my yeah. Leg, and I'm watching TV. Uh, if I'm sedentary, it's the worst. Yeah. I find relief when I move. When you're moving. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then you get cramps and all of that. So I know I have to take, uh, I take more salt tablets now than I ever have in the past because I'm getting older and the body is changing and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so. That's wild. Yeah. So, but I, to bring it back to ultra running, just, I want to hear like, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally like why do you think ultra running is such a healing thing and like the act of movement and the act of just being outside and all that you know is well running in in any form is very liberating yeah and for me you know being out in nature running on the trails road running i i'm out uh with along with my thoughts and um, it's good to be with nature. Um, and I wish that more people would get out the door and just walk around more. You don't have to run an ultra to stay mm-hmm. healthy. Yeah. You know? um, but if you enjoy it, um, and for me, it's also, it's very meditative. Yeah. Uh, ultra running for me is me- very meditative and I am, I'm a very, I'm a believer. I'm uh, a person of faith. I have a strong relationship with God. And when I'm running, even when I'm training or when I'm running an ultra, especially one in the dark in the middle of the night, when you're yeah. sleeping, you know, uh, I'm not alone. God is with me. Yeah. Yeah. So that it, to me, it's a form of prayer. It's a form of meditation. It's my conversation with God. Uh, and, um, I have really good mental strength, you know, sometimes your body gives in and doesn't want to keep going, but what keeps the body that doesn't want to keep going, going is your mind. Yeah. So it is mind over matter many times. Um, yeah. So I'm going to continue to 
to move and to do ultras as long as I can. And I have to tell you, I'm learning something about getting older, you know? Yeah. Um, I'll be um, 65 in January 2nd. Yeah. And um, I have to keep moving more now than ever. Yeah. Well, and I th- I've, I wonder, like, for me also, just, I mean, when you're talking about the craziness and the chaos of life sometimes, um, when I put on my shoes and I go out for a run, I'm in control of like yes. everything. I'm in control of pace. Uh, I'm in control of like where I'm going, all that stuff. Yes. It's yeah. That control. Absolutely. And it's a good reminder because when life is getting hectic and there's so many things I can't control, it is nice to go out and do something that I can. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it really is an escape from the chaos in our lives. It, it's two things. If you want to escape from the madness in the world or in your life, um, running is great. And it's also very therapeutic, you know, for mental health. It's good for your spiritual health. Yeah. Your emotional health. It's good for your physical health. And it's also good for your imagination. Yeah. And for being creative. I mean, I get some of my best running ideas when I'm running. Yeah. And I'll hit the brakes. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. And I'll get, I open my, my phone on my notes app and I start recording my thoughts. Yeah. I have tons of stuff on my phone here. Tons. If you want to know about my life, just get into my notes. <laughs> well, I've done that too, where I'll go out on a run and an idea will be so crystal clear Yes. You know, and I'll write it. I'll write some stuff down and all that stuff. And I've had it where I've gotten back and I'm like, that is a, such a good idea. And then I'll like put that idea into action, whether it's like, you know, doing this podcast, like sometimes I'll go for a run and I'll think about what topics I want to bring up or we, I want to hear the person talk about. Um, but then sometimes I get back and I read my notes and I'm like, I what was that? That makes no sense now. What was I thinking? Right. Yeah. What was yeah. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, I'm so grateful that there were virtual events. Yeah. They, they were, when I think back, you know, Chris, do you ever look back at your running and ask yourself, wait, how the hell did I run those miles? All the time. Yeah. I'm like, what? How did I do that? And I can't remember how I did it. But I must have done it because it's recorded and it's on ultra sign up. So it's not real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. Like while we're doing it, we are so present when we're doing it. We're yeah. in the zone. We're so present. And then afterwards we reflect on it. And I say, um, I have many times I'll, I'll have a conversation with John about a race. And I'm like, I don't know how I did that. You know, uh, he says, uh, you did it because you're crazy. <laughs> oh, oh right, right. I forgot I was crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, and then yeah. you're like, I got to sign up for something again to remember yeah, that I'm like, crazy. I'm not obsessed. I'm not yeah. obsessed. Like, but I, I do know what I want to run. If something comes up that I haven't done, uh, that is nearby. Now we stick close to home as much as we can because John can no longer pace me. Yeah. So I have to, I cannot sign for ultras. Uh, like I won't run a hundred mile run anymore uh, because he can't pace me. Yeah. You know, pacers are allowed. 
uh, I don't want to run trail ultras anymore because as I get older, I fear falling. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, and so we try to stay home and there are more and more ultras popping up where, near where we live, a couple of states around. So that's why I like running uh, timed events. Yeah. Know, 24 hour, you know, John Hens and Halls. And I'm like, oh, get over it. You know, just put up the tent and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a shirt for the timed events. Just put up a tent and go yeah. to sleep. And that's the crew shirt. Yeah. Um, but um, so we stay, you know, close to home and it's great. So I already know what I'm running uh, this year. I have two races, the dawn to dusk to dawn, 24 hour again, Mother's okay. Day. And then the um, Badger Palooza. Okay. The 12 hour event in October. And it's a kind of a strange uh, ultra where uh, it's like a last man standing kind of thing yeah uh, i don't know and i signed up for it. i'm like what the hell did i sign up for uh, so you have to run the 3.1 loop it's on it's in a winery so it's nice you know grassy part uh and you have an hour to do a 5k okay and when you finish with the 5k within the hour you stop you have to wait until the hour resets wait yeah and then you start all over again so that would be really cool Everybody potentially, uh, the goal is to do 76 miles, I think. Yeah. And, or, or I don't know how many miles I, I, didn't, I didn't calculate. And I'm like, oh God, so I have to wait, you know? And I guess waiting is good because, you know, you get recharged and you can go again. Yeah. But we're all in a corral and you have to get in the corral. Uh, and if you miss, you know, you can be disqualified. Yeah. So, and then as you're in the crowd, they show up with like some wine from the winery and you're they're like, you could buy this. You could purchase it while you're waiting. Yeah, you're like, yeah. I see well, what I this is. I don't drink wine. So, uh, <laughs> sorry for you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I'm going to, and then, uh, there's another race that I want to do in the summer because I love heat. Yeah. Love running in heat. So, um, um, look for another one. There's another one I have in mind. So I like to do about three, three. A yeah. Year. That's probably pretty good. I need, I'm, you know, we're in, when we're recording this, we're in December. I'll probably put this one out in January, but um, beginning of the year type situation and end of the year wrap up for me right now. And I'm like, man, what do I want to do in 2024? And life's been so go, 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 go that I haven't really even had time to consider what events inspire me? Which ones do I want to do for fun? Which ones do I want to like put the heart and soul into and all that stuff? So, so good on you for already having three, three ready. Yeah. I, yeah I always, you know, plan ahead and uh, I'll return to the events that are wonderful. You yeah. Know, the runners are great. The RGs are great. Mm -hmm. uh, get reunited with friends that are runners that you meet in other races. And, you know, so it's always yeah. a lot. It's yeah. Always a lot. That's awesome. Well, I want to hear a little bit about writing your book and just what that process was like. Um, I know you mentioned the fact that you journaled. Um, so I'll 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 show you my journal really quick because okay, on my messy desk. So it's right here, right? Okay. All here's right. how thick it is. Here's the thickness wow, of the journal. Okay, good. so <laughs> so but I'm showing you that because I started writing it in 2020, COVID lockdown stuff. Okay, great, great. And I was on the habit, the routine, because I was at home and there's nothing else to do. I was doing it every single day. And really, I was, in my mind, I'm like, 
I want to have this written down for my kids to be able to go back and read mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when I'm gone eventually, you know, and be like, oh, here's what dad, what was going through dad's brain. But as soon as life got busy again, I stopped journaling and I'm, I still probably am like, I still have like a fourth of it to go that's blank. And I'm like, oh man, I need to get started yeah. again, you know? Well, you know, don't. Okay. Well, journaling, I started, like I said, I started journaling in 2004 when I was having, I was being treated not very nicely in my workplace. And yeah. so I to write about it, to what that, well, how I was feeling. And uh, I'm also a published researcher. And so I'm always writing and documenting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that comes in easy to me. Uh, but I started to journal and I didn't journal every day. You don't need to journal every day. You don't yeah. need to journal every week, you know? And what I found was that uh, the negative experiences that I was having or something bad that was having, that's when I started to, I would journal that. Mm-hmm. And if one of things happened, there was no need to write about the happy things. Yeah. You know, so weird. But um I just started to just keep journaling and I used to handwrite everything in a big journal book. Yeah. I started to just type on my laptop and the last couple of years, um, I record, uh, either on my notes or you can also on my computer, on my MacBook pro, I can also dictate. Mm. Across the yeah. Screen. So, um and so I just journal so that was my writing process and so I knew what I wanted to do and I I wrote many chapters and then Chris maybe you might want to take advantage of this uh, there's uh every November there's a NaNoWriMo which is national uh national novel writing month you don't okay. have novel you it, you could do a memoir you can do whatever you want it's free you sign up at NaNoWriMo uh, and um, you have to a month of uh, November to write 50,000 words. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's a lot of words. <laughs> but you write a little bit, but I'd say I had old stuff that I already had written, like chapters. Okay. This was an opportunity for me to sit down and really revise this nonsense that I just wrote. Yeah. Okay. And I did it. I think I forget what year was it 2016 or 2017, all the chapters that I had written. So I did over 50,000 words. And then they send you a little certificate, you know? Yeah. And um, then they also have NaNoWriMo uh, camp in July. Okay. Same thing for the month of July. And so I started to refine, you know? Okay. And, And then I also joined a writer's group, a local writer's group. And one of the programs that they had was a critique sessions where uh, we would read each other's work ahead of time and then meet once a month and get feedback. And I was getting very good feedback. Yeah. And people liked what I was writing. Um, So then I just kept writing. And the pandemic, uh, the first year, the second year of the pandemic was when I really refined everything. Yeah. And I got three beta readers, people that were willing to read my work and give me feedback. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so it was a process. It was a process. There was stuff that I took out. It was stuff that I added in that I hadn't considered. Um, 
Yeah. So again, it's a process. It's like training for a race. Yeah. I'm not going to go out there and race untrained. Yeah. With whatever you're writing. If you you got to put the work in. got to put the work in. Well, let me ask. I have like a billion questions about all of that, sure. the process. And so what's the National Novel Writing Month? Is it like, is there feedback during that too? Like, are you getting feedback from the other people participating? You can. You can. Okay. You can. Uh, you can, uh, you know, sign up in different groups, like if you're writing a memoir or this and that, but that's too much work because I have to read everybody's comments. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I, I just, I, I, it was the time to sit down and discipline myself. So that's the butt plus chair equals writing time. That's right. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Gotcha. And, you know, and, and, and so you sit down and you write it and I write everywhere. I write at home. I write outside. I write in the car um, when I'm visiting my children and grandchildren and they're like, I need a break from them. I'll start writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. And, but there was no rush on my part. Yeah. No, no deadline, nothing like that. No, no, no. You know that you want to write it. Like I said, you know, uh, from start, from inception of idea to the first thing that I wrote, the first chapter that I wrote and other chapters till the time I was completed it. And I did have um, a professional editor evaluate it, you know, and she gave me really good feedback and it, she really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just, uh, you know, uh, took it uh, from there. Um, and then, of course, uh, depending uh, what kind of book it is that you're writing, memoir, you have to find the right publisher. And mm-hmm. you're not going to get an agent if you're not a celebrity. And yeah. I'm not- John Grimes in yeah. case of associate. Oh, you might be, though, because you're getting a phone call right now, you know? Well, that's John. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So, um, but let me ask you like, so as a couple kind of things like feedback wise, are you good at taking feedback? Cause I know just from being a person, but also from working with kids, it's hard. Taking feedback is hard and it's a skill that you can develop because, um, it's hard not to take it personally, especially if it's a memoir and especially if it's something you're that's about yourself. You know what I mean? Right. No. Um, see, I also taught writing for many years, so I always like to accentuate the writer's strengths. Yeah. I'm going to give someone feedback. I always look for the positive. And then if I see an area that needs development, I'll tell them why and how to do it. Okay. I won't ever, you know, I w- I joined a writer's group. Oh, I guess it was over 20 years ago. Barnes and Noble used to have a writing writer's group once. A yeah. Week. And uh, it was just a short stories that we would write. And one of the uh, facilitators, one of the people in charge of it, you know what her feedback to my short story was? You have impeccable punctuation. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Yeah. Uh, And everyone else's feedback was really good. Yeah. I think just from, so when we did our film during the editing process, there was three of us, but two of us, me and the editor worked, were like the daily, like working daily on developing 
how to tell the story and and come up with a with a rough cut and stuff like that and um our the other guy who directed with me paul he's a screenwriter he's been a writer for you know over 20 years now and has all this experience telling stories and whatnot so we kept him kind of out of the process um the day to the day-to-day process obviously like developing the arcs and stuff he was free he was so essential but um but then he came in he would come in after the big cuts that we'd make or the you know the rough draft and and all that and he'd give us feedback and i have it i have it like sitting up in my office and i want him to sign it one day i'm like paul i printed off your notes and i want you to sign it because it was so well done and i think the thing is like we you know you get when you're doing it day by day you get emotionally attached to certain things we had this we had one scene that was so beautifully done our editor just absolutely crushed it and and we're going through the notes and what paul said was that it was like he's you know it was a beautiful scene and all this but it just didn't fit where it needed, where it would have, would have had to fit. It like would have taken away momentum. And I'm like, oh, so he was so right. And he explained why, um, and he explained what to do instead. And it worked better. Um, and we both, we all agreed. We're like, that does work better. It was hard to cut out, but it was so important. So I just think like, not only, receiving feedback and being open and willing like ultimately you're like i want to make the best thing i can make um but also like how to give feedback is something that is a skill that like anyone could develop how to give good feedback really um but a lot of people don't yeah what you want to do is this is seems to be a sentiment among writers especially first-time writers who are are, want to self-publish their memoirs or yeah publisher um they want their friends and their families to read their work and their friends and family don't are not interested remember this thing when you write you are writing for an audience you're yeah. not for your family or your friends yeah and this is really important so um i had uh really good beta readers and one of them was my daughter but she's an english major okay and she taught uh she t- taught English, sixth grade English. My both of my kids are sixth grade educators. Oh man, good for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, I always think of you when I think of my kids. <laughs> uh and um uh but my daughter Jana is very good and gives really good feedback. You yeah. Know? And she can separate my story. Yes. Yeah. So she can do that because she's looking at it as a reader. Um and um there was one chapter, uh, my B12 chapter uh, was super long because I was t- including just too much from what the doctor's saying and this and that. And all the beta readers said the same thing. You got to cut this. I'm lost. You know? And I knew exactly what I had to do. So I like cut like four pages out of that chapter. Yeah. yeah. And so, because you're right, you're too attached to it. It's very emotional, yeah. personal experience. And you do end up cutting things. And if you want to, well, I'm sure you read a lot of books, but one of the things I told people, if you want to be a writer, you first have to be a voracious reader. Yeah. You have to read a lot. And I read so much. Like 
I just finished reading uh, in two months from August to October, I read uh, six memoirs. Wow. And four of them were food memoirs. And two of them were memoirs about chronic illness. One memoir was about living with uh, Lyme disease. And the other one was about living with Crohn's disease. Yeah. And my next book, which I've already started to write, is about it's going to be part memoir, food memoir, and part cookbook about how I healed my eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a rare autoimmune disease of the esophagus that, in my case, caused very life threatening food impactions. And I suffered for 26 years. Yeah. And I figured it out over a year ago when doctors couldn't help me and the diets they prescribed were making things worse. My eosinophil count kept going to 100. I figured out what the problem was. I tested a theory and my theory was I need to eliminate preservatives, additives, food coloring, hormones, antibiotics, steroids, pesticides, and insecticides. I created my own diet. I call it the Miriam diet because this diet doesn't exist. You know? <laughs> Yeah. And um, guess what? My eosinophil count went from 100 to up to zero. Wow. That was it. That yeah. was the, the biopsy report. Yeah. That was it. There's nothing wrong with this woman. And the doctor says, you're healed. Yeah. Uh, so, and just like when I read, uh, wrote my memoir, my ultra running memoir, it didn't start off as an ultra running memoir, but then yeah. it became um, I had read so many running memoirs. And, you know, uh, tons of memoirs that have to do with running for years. I have a whole collection of them. And so you want to see the formats that they use, how they tell the story. But everyone is going to tell a very uniquely different story. Yeah. Story. But yeah, if you want to write, you're thinking about writing a, a book, a memoir, Chris? I am not. No, I think mine would be the most uninteresting memoir of all time and uh <laughs> um it, it just it's just it takes time you don't want to rush it it's a journey yeah well and that's the other thing i wanted to bring up and ask you about is the fact that it is a process i guess i there's the only thing i really i regret about our whole filmmaking thing which if we do another one um i'm gonna try my best to do that to do this but basically when we had a rough cut of the movie it was probably like 60 percent done at the time like we still had to go out and get other interviews and and all this like it was it was it was enough where i was like oh man this is going to be pretty good but it was it was still really rough and i showed it to my wife and I just remember my buddy Paul, um, you know, he told me, he's like, hey, just remember this because you're going to want to go and show it to everybody because it's something you're so excited for, you're so proud of. But he's like, they only get to see it for the first time once, you know? And I showed my wife like the 60% finished version. And I'm like, man, it, it's, I wish I, cause with everyone else, I held on to it and didn't show like my closest friends, the other people who were in the movie. Like I didn't show them any of it until it was fully completed. And I saw their reaction when we finally got around to it. And I'm like, man, like I'm, I wish I would have had the discipline to not have shown her 
until it was fully done. But it was so hard because I was literally talking to her about it every single day. You created something and you want to share it and scream it to the world. Exactly. Natural. That's natural. But yeah, like I didn't show uh, anything to anybody um, until I was ready. And that took many years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so that's the thing. I think I think it was actually a really good practice for me because, you know, nowadays we can have everything at the click of a button, you know, or a lot of things at just like the snap of a finger, like in, you know, you get this moment, like you get this satisfaction instantly. Um, and with this, it was such a prolonged, like have to hold off on the satisfaction part. And I think it was really good for my brain in that sense, but it was hard. So I was wondering how you handled that. No, see, I, I guess, uh, it also comes with, um, uh, your patience will grow more as you get older. Mm, yeah i think that's the key like i think if i if i started to write my memoir when i was in my 30s or 40s it would have been very different yeah and maybe, but now that i'm much older um you know i i can sit back and just be really relaxed about it um and um you know you always want to do the best that you can but uh you know people are who they are and um you know i've been really fortunate that so far I've gotten really good reviews yeah. you know so I'm happy about that and of course there's going to be a bad review in there somewhere you yeah. know that it's too but again you know if you can touch and inspire one person your job is done yeah. that's how I you know uh, I was reading recently that there are five billion people on the internet and one percent is creators and 99% are consumers. Yeah. You're a unique group. When yeah. I'm inspired, like I think about that a lot because it's so easy to consume all day, like all day, every day, every moment you can consume. It's a different world for you kids. Very different. I mean, what you guys are growing up with, what your daughters are growing up with, what my grandchildren are growing up with. I'm just so glad it's not part of my world. Yeah. Because, you know, but, you know, back in the day, if you wanted, if you had an article idea, for example, I remember when I I got my first article, my first paid article was in uh, 1995. I had an idea for an article. I typed a letter on an old typewriter. (laughs) We didn't have, (laughs) you know, you get a stamp and you, you know, and within the week, I got a response. Yes, we're very interested. It was for a nursing journal. We're very interested in, in your article. Please send us the full manuscript. I send the full manuscript. It was published. I got a check. You know, that it was republished again. They gave me another check. That's you know? cool. And it was my first query ever. Yeah. Okay. Today you query and you don't even get the courtesy of a response. Yeah. You just don't even know what happened with it. Yeah. Did anybody read it? Does anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody, everybody wants to be a writer. Everyone is publishing, you know, and it's, uh, you'll get lost in the shuffle, but, but stick to your goal. You have your vision, you know, stick to it. Uh, You will have people along the way that are going to support you. Like my publisher, you know, you know, we had to get uh, uh, writers, authors have to get endorsements. 
you know. And I reached out to endorsements. I reached out to Dean Carnassus and Charlie yeah. and Bart Yasso, who I've met. I, I haven't met Charlie, but I interviewed him. Dean I've met and um uh Bill Watts, I haven't met, but I uh reviewed his book. And they were like that. Sure, Miriam. You know, yeah. so just you know, there are people out there that will support your movie. And that was your first movie. But now you know what to do and you'll make another one. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> no comment, no comment, no comment. But no, I have other ideas. And I think I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like the activation ener energy. So like if you're doing something the first time, the amount of energy it takes to figure out how to do something for the first time is so high right and then i was thinking like okay if we decided we wanted to do another one it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of energy and a lot of time but the activation energy won't be as big you know like uh, right, so right, right. that's the thing that's that makes me think it would be doable my kids are at such a busy age right now i'm just straight up dad mobile all the time like every yeah, night that's the other thing uh you know uh my family always came first. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. But uh, but it didn't prevent me from going out uh, for two or three miles. Yeah. You know, exactly. A little, I just throw them in the rowing stroller and, you know, and I just push them along. No, know? I love that as it pertains to like creative endeavors, because you're right. Like even being a busy adult and a busy life doesn't prevent you from two or three miles. And right writing or you know doing a film or doing something that you're passionate about it being busy doesn't prevent you from putting in 20 minutes of work on it every day you know mm -hmm. what i mean i mean there are how many minutes are there in a week i think there are 10,080 minutes in a week surely we have 60 minutes where we can go for a run <laughs> yeah exactly bad, look at it you know no, that is it's smart and you know and i try my best to go for a run in the morning and when we were doing the film thing, I was trying my best to do it at times that wasn't affecting my kids, you know, but, and I think it's important for them to see that mom and dad are, you know, passionate about something. Right. And you have a good work ethic yeah. and, you're and they're going to love you for that. And now my kids, you know, they're in their thirties now and, you know, they have their own children. And I think now they can appreciate mom and dad a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they can. But, but Chris, you know, I think about it. I'm like, when did I have these two kids? When did I give birth to them? How do they grow? Where do they go to school? It's the same with like, how did I run all these miles? When exactly. you look back and you're like, how did I do this? This doesn't even make sense. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it's doable. You're young. You're young. And you <laughs> well, have a wonderful family and a wife that supports you. She's very supportive, yeah, in all this Uh all these endeavors, but I wanted to hear from you. So it's funny, you talked about inspiring one person and I know for a fact, like your book's gonna inspire way more than one person, but it's the ripple effect. Like you're sending out positivity and stuff. And you mentioned uh, Pam Reed and Dean Carnassus watching them on 60 Minutes. They sent out that ripple effect too. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to hear just, you know, you said you've read a bunch of running memoirs. It does. Do any of them stand out as ones that you would recommend um, or oh, ones that really yes. affected you? I, I, uh, well, I've read all of 
of Dean's books and his first one, Ultra Running Man, was so inspiring. In fact, I read that book uh, when I started to train for my first 100 mile ultra. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Engel's book, Run. I know, Running Man. Okay. Have you read that book? I have not. You have to read that book. It is intense. I learned so much about, he wrote that while he was in prison. Yeah, dude seems kind of intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when I interviewed him. He he is amazing. And it's funny. You'll be shocked. Your jaw will drop. You were like, oh, my God. And the way he wrote, he had me just laughing. Yeah. Hard scenes. Uh, Bart Yassel's book um, was also very good where he, and he also includes different plants. And he writes about, you know, running with Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. uh, um uh, uh Katra Corbett's book. Mm -hmm. I, I, I got to it. interview her about that. Yeah. And I got to meet her at across the years in 2020. Yeah. After the six day. Yeah. Um, oh my God. I have a whole... running for six days. That's what she was doing. Yeah. I think it was six or 10 days. Yeah. I have That's oh, crazy. And I have Scott Juris books. Oh yeah. I loved the Appalachian trail one. Oh like, yes, yes. And I met, I met Scott in 2018 when he was at the Atlantic City uh Vegan Fest. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Nice guy. Um yeah, there's just like so many books that I have about yeah. of course um uh Christopher McDougall's mm -hmm. one. And I met him a couple of years ago at a book festival. Um yeah, so Right. There's just a lot. And it is funny because you're like, it's just interesting from an outside perspective. People are probably like, don't you just put on shoes and you just go out there. But we we both know and people who are runners or even like just any endurance athletes probably know like there's so much that just goes on mentally, like, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, and it's that's the really the fascinating part. Ultimately, it's not just going out and doing a distance or setting a personal yeah. best on your time. It's like literally like the things that you're learning along the way are the important things. Yeah. You learn one of the things that I've learned uh, through all my years of running is that one, I am the least competitive person you'll ever meet. Yeah. I'm not a competitive person at all. You know, I'll go into a race. If I place good for me. Yeah. No, it wasn't my intention. Um, uh, but I do like to, I like that search at the end, you know, when it's almost over. Um, but, um, and I've learned that um, I, I am a patient person. You know, I've become, running will do, has that effect on me. Uh, and um, I think one of the reasons why I didn't enjoy running marathons, I mean, I ran nine before I, I did enjoy running marathons, but I stopped running marathons because I found the people in the corral extremely competitive. Yeah. And comparing their pace. Yeah. I'm like, people, take it easy. Where's the fire? Just yeah. have fun. Look yeah. at this beautiful sky and this beautiful day. What is the big deal? But yeah. some people are like that and good for them. I'm not like that. Yeah. And I, again, when you run an ultra, it's not about speed. You know, it's about endurance and your ability to persevere 
and to be able to move when you're sleep deprived and you're zigzagging on that course and when suddenly you have a hallucination. I mean, I had this bizarre hallucination at the Haynesport 48 hour ultra. It was the second night and super cold. It's on a 1.9913 mile park loop. And um, in front of me, ahead of me, I'm like, oh my God, what is that elderly woman with a walker doing outside in this freezing weather? It was like 40 something. I, I was in layers and a blanket and everything. Yeah. And, and I could see her hospital gown, you know, the hospital gowns. It was like opening in the back. Yeah. And she had a walker. And I'm like, oh my God, is there a nursing home nearby? Did she not know where she is? And she can't feel the cold. I'm freezing. So I try to walk faster to catch up to her. And I, as, as I caught up to her, I realized it was another runner. <laughs> she had on a cape. <laughs> on a cape and she had walking poles. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh man. Oh, my Christo. Oh, my God. It's you. I almost called 911. Yeah. And I was telling her this story. And she said, well, you know, there is a nursing home nearby. I said, so I wasn't completely far off. And then we just started to talk about all the hallucinations we've uh, oh my God. had. And it made the time go a little bit faster. That's hilarious. Well, Miriam, where, uh, where can people find your book or follow yeah. your journey or any of that stuff? Well, you can find my book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, uh, also the publisher, Whip and um stock publishers but if you go to my uh website uh, miriam diaz gilbert.com uh you'll see the link for my memoir and all of that is there um and, and the book can, yeah can you say the name one more time for everybody yeah the book yeah is come with me i want to run a memoir of the saving grace of ultra running in overwhelming times and it comes in paperback, hardcover, and uh, ebook and Kindle. Um, so if uh, you know books make great gifts, so books are know, great gifts. Yeah, they make great gifts. I always I've gotten so many books as gifts. I also collect uh, books from people's trash. <laughs> um, I have over thirteen hundred books in my house, and I've gotten some real beauties. Yeah. You got to do a whole category of just like trash books. Oh, these are the yeah, best yeah. trash books you can find. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And I have like almost 100 uh, readers uh, digest condensed books. Yeah. In condition that people put on the curb in boxes. Amazing. That's yeah. amazing. But, well, yeah, Miriam. So, yeah. And yeah. you can follow me on Instagram at Ultra Miriam. My Facebook page at Ultra Miriam. And uh, X and Threads. And um, yeah, please support me and buy my book. Awesome. Awesome. Thank well, you so much, Chris, for having me. On. Oh, thank you. This was super fun. And you're always you're always welcome back. This was an awesome, awesome time talking with you. I want to wish you and your family a wonderful Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays and a very peaceful and healthy 2024. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up this week's episode of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Uh, huge thanks to Miriam for coming on the show. Uh, definitely go on her website, miriamdiazgilbert.com. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, check out her book, uh, Come What May, I Want to Run. Uh, and yeah, just I hope it brings perspective to this idea of like, hey, man, like, 
we got our challenges. Some are big, some are small, some are world changing, some are microscopic. Uh, but you know what might help during all of those challenges is just putting the shoes on and, and going for it. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, I just want to hopefully use this episode as a reminder that you can do. You know what's funny? I was about to say you can do hard things. That's what I was about to say. Um, and then I remembered a note that my seven-year-old's best friend wrote her the other day that I found on the ground at our house and I opened it up and it's from her friend Ruby and it just said Zo it said Zoe I hope you're feeling okay uh hope you're feeling better remember we can do hard things and I was like dude you know what man if a 7 year old knows that then uh <laughs> I hope that's something we all can embrace um as this year goes forward and whatever hard things whatever that looks like to you whatever that means to you i understand it's like a phrase that's on coffee cups now don't think that's getting by me right now i know i'm saying something that's on like hallmark gift cards at this point um but it's a good phrase that's why that's why it's on hallmark gift cards you know what i mean uh so i hope 2024 that's like a mindset a mentality you can embrace i hope it's a mindset and mentality i can embrace um because I'm really excited. It's funny. Like, I just feel like a new year is a kind of a refresher, um, you know, to, to just the way you've been living. Like, what was your normalcy? Now we get this space from it. Uh, and now we get a refresher and I feel refreshed. Um, and I also realized, you know, we could technically have a refresher every single moment. That's the idea of the blank slate, right? You have that every single moment. You have that available to you. How are you going to show up in this moment? How are you going to show up tomorrow? You know, what kind of things, what kind of ways do you want to steer your life? Because ultimately you're steering it. No one else is steering it. You have your hands on the wheel and you get to decide where it goes, which is, which is awesome. Uh, there's a line in the song, Stairway to Heaven, which just says, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And I know I talked about, I think I talked about that line um, a few months ago um, before my big trip last year. And I just want to remind everyone of it because I think that's a powerful idea. You get to decide. So, um, all right, that wraps up. Oh, I said I was going to preview a couple upcoming episodes. Um, so I am very, very excited. Um, we have a few recorded right now. I'll preview one of them and I'm not hundred percent sure when I'm going to put it out. Um, well, I th I'll, I'll preview a couple of them. Uh, we have one recorded with my friend Cameron Dorn. Cameron's been on the, on the podcast a couple times. Uh, I met him at a race before I started doing the podcast and he had previously set the world record for the most burpees in 24 hours um and i think since then it's been broken but the dude did like over 10,000 burpees in 24 hours it's insane uh but he's an awesome awesome guy and recently he put a list online of the hardest workouts he'd ever participated in and a lot of them were just really silly challenges you just you know suggest to a buddy and then your buddy would laugh about it and then you're like 
no man let's actually burpee for a mile like bur- drop down do a burpee jump up jump forward drop down do a burpee jump up jump forward let's do that for a whole mile you know um so there's a list of like 12 of these different workouts he's done and cameron and i just go through each one and <laughs> and talk about how ridiculous it is basically and it was a blast and it made me want to lunge for like five miles or something crazy like that uh so that was an awesome one and then another one coming up is with filmmaker jared carp uh jared right now is currently involved with project africa um in which russ cook uh an, an amazing ultra runner from the united kingdoms is currently running from the very southern tip of Africa in South Africa all the way up to the northern tip in Tunisia and he is over 200 days into the project uh there's a small crew of like three or maybe four other people with him that are driving vans supporting him but they're also filming him and editing episodes every few days together for YouTube. Um, Here's some homework for everybody out there listening, if you're still listening at this point. Uh, Your homework is to watch some of the Project Africa episodes. It's on the Hardest Geezer YouTube channel. And I promise you, because I'm really into all this adventure stuff, and I love watching it and consuming it, because it inspires me in my own life for my adventures. And I promise you, Project Africa, these this story is the coolest thing going on in ultra running right now. Hands down, the coolest, most amazing, most incredible thing. And I'll say this too, personally, I think this whole YouTube series is one of the best things going on YouTube right now. Um, the amount of ups and downs and obstacles. Like if you ever want to feel what it would be like to go on a big mission like this or a big expedition, uh, these guys, these filmmakers and Russ, they put you in the project. They like, you're a part of the project is what it feels like. Um, because they do such a wonderful, a wonderful job telling the story. Like you really get a sense of the communities they're traveling through. You get a sense of the obstacles and the challenges that they face you get a sense of the camaraderie and like the goofiness between the crew um which is amazing it is fantastic in fact all those things i just said i'm probably going to (laughs) repeat in the intro to the episode with jared and um i think that's going to be coming in a few weeks so uh stick around for that check out that stuff though like catch up because we go in deep we talk about a lot of different things along with jared's journey into filmmaking Uh, which involves a lot of um, ocean diving and like really cool stuff like that. So uh, I recorded that one at 4 a.m. because he lives in South Africa. (laughs) So so you can hear me drinking coffee too. Um, All right, that wraps up this episode of Like a Bigfoot Podcast and we'll get back at you next week.